What's that? Jordan Peterson's working on an exegesis of the Cain and Abel story? Well, that's cute. JP, sit back. Let me show you how it's done. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast, unprovoked trash talking. What has gotten into him, Cain and Abel, what they didn't tell you in Sunday School edition of this here podcast. Today we are combing through a number of Jewish sources to find out every possible thing we might even maybe know about these two fascinating characters. So I'm going to be reading through the story and filling in a bunch of the things which you probably have never heard before. I know I didn't know them until this morning when I put this episode together. All right, we're picking up right around Genesis chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Couple things. One, is that the rabbis point out that the way they are using the, I guess, suffix on the end of gave birth implies that there were more kids. Now, a number of them say that it's quite likely that there was a daughter, born as a twin to Abel. That one's pretty popular. It's also possible that Cain and Abel both had twin sisters. And then the final possibility, which personally I think is most likely, is that Abel and Cain were twins. And there's a clue even when we read this in English. It says she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And then she said this, she gave birth to his brother Abel. That's not the way that we typically read it when there's um, discrete events. Instead, we hear, and then Adam and Eve came together once more, and they had Abel. So, very possible the text is cluing us into the fact that there are twins going on. I think the most likely possibility is that uh, Cain and Abel are twins. Much like Jacob and Esau were twins, and we'll find some parallels to these two later on down. Now, the theory that Abel had a twin sister is quite popular in the tradition. In fact, it's commonly chalked up to be one of the major reasons why Cain had such animosity towards Abel. Cain believed that this sister was supposed to be his wife. Yes, gross, I know. However, Abel says, well, we came out as a box set, so she's clearly mine, and this could have kicked off some of the animosity. Now, I don't actually think that these are the only humans running around on Earth at the time, and that's where they found their wives. But because a lot of the tradition operated on the assumption that these were indeed the only biological humans, not just the only theological or philosophical humans, um, yeah, it has to work in the wives somewhere, and this is a common spot. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, there is a Hebrew idiom here. Um, that always reminds me of the Pink Panther line, you, sir, are the idiom. Anyways, the idiom here is the uh, the phrase we render in English. Um, oh, where did it go? Oh, who knows? Oh, here we go. 
Um, so we have the uh, Cain brings an uh, brings this offering, and oh goodness, I can't find it. I can't find it in a tiny paragraph. Here's what you need to know. Um, it looks like Cain is not bringing the first fruits. Instead, he delays and gives leftovers. So yeah, it seems that he was too late bringing his offering, possibly just too late in the harvest calendar. Also, it is widely held that Abel's offering is a burnt offering because this is likely the oldest style and it seems to be what's being described in the text. We just have a few clues. It's a lamb. Uh, we see the offering of the fat. And the burnt offering is incredibly important if you remember the Leviticus episodes. I believe that's the first offering we actually talked about. Um, and some of the details of the burnt offering will become important a wee bit later on. But we'll just leave it right there. Quite likely a burnt offering. Now... It seems that we do know the type of crop that Cain was offering. Um, it looks like he was offering flax, which again becomes important soon. But right now, I'm just trying to fill you in with all of the facts as we go through the text. But um, one more thing I want to point out right here, and that is, uh, just look at the line here. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. This section, this, um, this initial curse, which is bringing on himself by not actually obeying the sacrificial law, which they somehow knew about, which God probably told them, um, or at least told Adam and Eve directly. Um, this mirrors what Moses writes a little bit later on over in number six in the famous priestly blessing because no both of them are acting as priests but one of these priests is defective so here's the one of the most famous passages from the torah number six the lord said to moses tell aaron and his sons this is how you are to bless the israelites say to them the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you the lord turn his face towards you and give you peace so they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? So remember that in light of that blessing, the idea that God should shine his face on you, that you should turn your face towards God. Well, he has a downcast face, right? Augustine would remind us this is the posture of the sinner, caving in on oneself, looking at only oneself, being downcast and dejected instead of responding in worship with joy. Okay, so back to verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So this sin, which is crouching at his door, is called in Jewish tradition the evil urge. And here are three examples of the evil urge, which I found amusing. These are, I believe, all from the Talmud, coming from each a different rabbi, I'm pretty sure. One, children. You know how children will just reach out for a hot stove or they'll go up to the uh, very dangerous ledge or they'll just do dumb things that even an animal would know not to do? This, in their opinion, is kind of like the evil urge. And there's something self-destructive? 
and you just reach for it. Yeah, just do. Why? I don't know. Just an evil urge. Another one which I found amusing. One rabbi paints the picture of uh, you're in a house and a bunch of robbers arrive. And now um, they've kidnapped you in your own home. But your friend was visiting and he's in the other room. The evil urge says, you know, my friend's in the other room. Well, you're going to kill me. You might as well kill him too. I don't know how many people have that particular urge. But evil urge. Next one. And this, I think, is the best one. One rabbi says, imagine that Israel is like a field. And uh, the field doesn't produce any crops for the king, king being God. So the, uh, the king fertilizes and waters and tends the field and invests massively in bringing this to productivity. And then the field, meh, just produces one sheath of wheat. That's the evil urge. This just movement to evil, just for no reason. It's that um, deficient cause that just lunges us back towards non-being for almost no reason. So this is the evil urge which Cain has. Um, one that's crouching at his door, just saying, you know what? Just uh, reach for self-destruction. I don't know. Just do it. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, um, we learned in an earlier episode, the uh, Jacob and Esau episode, that there's a Jewish idiom, the man of the field. And a man of the field is a term for a hobo or a wandering vagrant. Um, So when we see Cain luring him out to the field, and then later he's cursed as a wanderer, He's becoming basically a a vagrant, a hobo. He's casting himself out of society. He's becoming this this, uh, man of the field, a step closer to animal. Um, Tradition says that it was death by a stone. Apparently the word that's used for the wound or the attack or something um, is most likely explained by the use of a stone. And that's why most artwork that you see depicting this is Cain holding a stone. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? So God has the same reaction to Cain as he had to his mother and father when he asks, Where are you? Because in both cases, he's giving an opportunity for self-examination and repentance. Verse 10. The Lord said, What's that that you've done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Um, interestingly, blood here in the Hebrew is plural. And this has a couple possibilities. One is um, he, he's cut off not just, not just his brother Abel, but all of his descendants The implication is that by killing this early man, by killing Abel, he is essentially destroying the fate of everybody who would have come after him in his line. So 
the, uh, I believe it's the Talmud, says that all of his would-be descendants cry out in that moment to God. So it's highlighting the ripple of sin. Another possibility is bloods refer to blood in many places, so that the result of this attack was not just to wound his head and then he just dropped, but to smash his head such that blood goes everywhere, on the trees, on the ground, everywhere, so that there's bloods plural in this case. Now, I'm going to quickly read the section earlier in Genesis, which is the uh, the curse which his parents got, because this is the second cursing of people. All right, so he just got that one where the crops will no longer yield their increase, right? And now he's a wanderer on the earth. Here's what his, um, here's what his parents got, specifically Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil will, f- will you eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. So very similar curse to what Adam has. Um, Though I will point out that he is cursed on top of this curse. So that, that curse of Adam is not rescinded. So Cain is already operating in this world, but the ground is further cursed, and he, by extension, is further cursed. So... Adam is driven out of Eden to the east, and we'll find soon that Cain is driven out of that place which is east of Eden, even further east. Just a movement further and further from God, further and further from comfort, further and further from um, the communion that he should have had with his neighbors. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, there's a lot of talk about what this mark was. Some people, like Origen, I believe, say that it was a uh, it was a physical mark of some type. Augustine, uh, I believe he says it's just a spiritual mark. And then other people like Jerome, I believe he said that it was both kind of a sacramental mark. Now, um, the seven which is going on here is quite important and apparently in the original language is doing a lot more work than it appears. Um, it seems that seven being the number of completion implies that there's a, uh, a completion of his punishment which is coming around later. Recall the earth is created in seven days in the chapters prior. And then in the seventh day, we have a rest, right? So we're going to look for this in the text, and it's coming very, very soon. Another thing, one of the possibilities for the mark is that it's a, um, uh, upon killing Abel, he descends closer to the level of the beasts by saying no to reason, by saying no to worship, and saying yes to only self and those animal passions, that urge of evil, the, the flesh welling up in you, as Paul might put it. 
So when he does that, the original blessing, which we're told earlier in Genesis, man had that the beasts feared us is taken away. Because at that point, the beasts think that Cain is one of them and they have lost their fear of him. And this comes from those in the tradition seeing him as one of the only humans on earth. They said, well, what would this mean if there weren't people to talk to? Maybe God's speaking to the animals and saying, hey, animals, you can't kill Cain. Yes, he has descended to your level, but he's not one of you for you to kill. Possible. But let's move on. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehigalel, and Mehigalel was the father of Methuselah, and Methuselah was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jepal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naaman. Lamech had two wives, Adel and Zillah. Listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Why do you say this? What's going on? What did that podcaster fellow you've been listening to say about the number of completion in the seven? Well, if you counted up those generations, you'll find that because Lamech just had a kid, the seventh generation of Cain has now come about. And now somebody just got killed. Who was it? Cain. The tradition says that Lamech is out hunting with some of his friends and I think family. And uh, he's got poor eyesight. And he's looking around and he sees through the bushes something that looks like an animal. And uh, he has a bow. So he decides he's going to take the shot. And once he shoots it and kills it and comes up to find out what he killed, he realizes it's Cain. And that's where we get this panicked idea of, okay, check my math, guys. Okay, hang on. This is all right. Um, I killed Cain, so you can't avenge me. 70 times 7, I swear. The math adds up. You can't kill Lamech, guys. This was totally an accident. Um... So that seems to be what happened. Oh, or at least that's what the tradition um, strongly implies happened. The only reason why I think there's a bit of doubt here is he says, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. That doesn't exactly sound like it'd be Cain since he'd be old. And second reason is for injuring me. I don't see an injury going on. But it's also possible that because this section looks like it's in in verse, it's being pulled from something else or it's um, it's a, a reference to something that we have lost. The tradition does seem to uh, almost unanimously say that it was the hunting accident and Lamech killed Cain. But again, 
This is not infallible tradition. I am giving you everything I can find about these guys. Not everything I'm certain about. It's for you guys to um, to take out of this episode what you will. All right. You might be wondering, wait a minute. Are you saying that Cain warranted death, but it wasn't visited on him until the seventh generation? Why, why didn't you compare him to Adam and Eve earlier, doing this sin, grasping at evil? Why did they die? In the seventh generation, you might be wondering? Well, the Midrash helpfully tells us that there are three stages of death. One was the loss of immortality, rightly called death. You are now become a mortal. Two, becoming subject to pain and disease and stuff like that. And three, actually kicking the can. And of course, this mirrors the stages of salvation that we get when you're joined to the new Adam, Christ. When you're granted eternal life in baptism, you go from, well, mortal to immortal. You're putting off your old flesh and you're taking on the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And then through grace, you are freed from the sin and diseases of death, which would have affected you. And finally, in the end, you are raised to new life in the resurrection. So, It mirrors this three-stage salvation in the three stages which are outlined for death. Now, Adam and Eve experienced death number one immediately. So in the day that they ate this, they truly died. But they truly died in the first sense. They lost their immortality. Then they were subject to death. That's when they're kicked out of Eden, right? Now they're subject to all of the terrors of nature around them. And then... Death number three, indeed, comes in the seventh generation. But most people don't count it that way because they're following not the line of Cain, but instead the line of Seth. If you count up the line of Cain, well, let's do that now. So they had Cain, then comes Enoch, then comes Canaan, then comes Mehechadel, then comes, no, yeah, then comes Arad, then Medjushalah, then Methuselah, then Lamech, and then Neymah. I butchered every single name. Anyways, upon the seventh generation, they died. And how do we know this? Because they were definitely dead by Noah, right? We know this because they weren't on the ark. So even if they were alive at the time of Noah, they would have been popped off by the flood, which I don't think they did. Um, So they were dead before Noah came about. So that would put them um, dying at the time of Lamech coming on the scene. Bang, seven generations. And then Lamech's son comes around, and then that's the seventh generation for Cain, and that's when he dies. Now, interestingly, we have ten generations in the line of Seth. And why does the number ten matter here? Well, tradition says that God made ten discrete statements when creating the universe, and That's just what was spoken of in the chapters prior here in Genesis. Recall, we're only at Genesis 4, so we're very early into the book. So we just had these 10 statements which God made to create the universe. We have the uh, 10 commandments, right? That's how we keep the universe from breaking. We had the 10 plagues which uh, caused Egypt to be free. And Jesus, when he's talking about how to 
infuse the whole universe with his resurrected life, speaks the ten Beatitudes, though some count eight. So now ten seems to be the number of God's creative power, which is why um, in, we, when we count down Seth's line, we get to Noah through Seth, in the 10th generation. So it'd be Noah's first kids. That the beginning of the new population is 10 generations through the Holy Line. Um, there is also a connection, which I talked about um, in the Leviticus episode, where we're to forgive, what is it, seven times, 70 times. There's the prophecy of Daniel, which is the what, 70 times, seven times, 70 weeks. And then there's this proclamation of Lamech, who declares immunity for 77 generations. And I would tell you all about that right now, but I forgot it. So go back and listen to that episode. Right now, let's get back to the passage. Uh, verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. All right. Um, there are so many things to say about this passage. But I wanted to give you a lot of the info, just like the raw data that's commonly uh, not known unless you, you plumb through all those old texts and such. So I gave you the highlights. I gave you the stuff that we should know. Now I want to give you a little window into the context of uh, when this story was written. And I'm going to be doing so by offering a, uh, well, I don't know, a very stylized rendition of how one of the early Israelites could have could have learned about this from Moses. I, of course, for my random Israelite voice, will be using the same impression that doubles as my impression of my college roommate, Dean. So, shout out, Dean. I think you've heard this, uh, this impression in the previous episode on Jacob and Esau. <clears throat> hey, Moses, what you writing over there? Yeah, it's a story about two brothers. Uh, one's a shepherd. Oh, yeah, cool, Moses. Like, uh, kind of like us, right? We went down to Egypt, land of Goshen. We were, like, doing the sheep thing for a while. You know, you wrote that in Genesis chapter uh, 46. See, I read. Anyways, um, yeah, you mentioned there that the Israelites really didn't like us. They thought that shepherds were detestable. So, yeah, totally relatable so far. This brother sounds super cool. Um, yeah, he is. Um, so this guy, let's call him Abel, sacrificing a lamb to the Lord, and, and God looks favorably on it. Well, what about the other guy? I bet he's a jerk, Moses. Is he a jerk? Uh, yes. So his name is Cain. He, he's a jerk. Uh-huh. So, uh, he's not sacrificing sheep. Instead, he's a farmer. Oh, what's he grow? Uh, flax. Yeah, flax. I remember that stuff. Wasn't that what the Egyptians used to grow for, like, the linen and stuff? And, like, wait a minute. So so the whole tension in your story here is that the one guy's got, like, sheep, and the other guy doesn't have sheep, and he's growing the stuff that the Egyptians grow, and they don't have anything to sacrifice, and then they get really mad at the good guys? Yeah, that's that's kind of it. You're, you, you're getting it. 
So why does the one guy just give him some of his crops, and then he could get a sheep in return, and then everything will be fine? What? Like, it seems this whole tension could have been resolved simply by Cain giving some of his crops, like really any of them, in exchange for a lamb. Um, yeah, uh, that, that, that would have been the obvious solution. Yes, yes. Whoa, so you're saying that, well, that's kind of like the Egyptians. They, they refused to give us straw, and that started this whole thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this about Egypt and Israel? Is that why there's a good dude raising sheep who wants to worship God and a bad dude who grows crops and engages famously in large-scale agriculture while becoming jealous of us, refusing to give us straw, then getting a judgment directly from God after failing to sacrifice a lamb, and then they, as the firstborn, die? Yeah, that, that, that's actually it, random Israelite. It, you kind of nailed it. But wait a minute. We didn't all die. We weren't all killed. Well, that's actually where you're wrong. The first generation of you guys did die. You're the second generation. So in my story, I introduce another guy named Seth. So the first generation dies in the wilderness, right? Just like, you know, just like Abel dies out in the fields. And then we have a second generation that comes off and picks up the salvation story. There you go. My rendition of the first Israelite, uh, based on my old college roommate, Hearing this story, that's how they would have heard it. This sounds weirdly a lot like the story of coming out of Egypt. Down to the, I mean, we can even get to a few other things. Um, one, the first plague is blood, right? And then what cries out to heaven? The blood of Abel. It ends with the death of the firstborn, right? That's the last plague. And the blood of Abel being the sign against Cain, culminates in the death of the firstborn when Cain gets killed. Um, the armies of Egypt are drowned in the sea. The seed of Cain is described as being drowned in the flood later. We have the hard heart of Pharaoh being described as a stone, and this is the cause of all the problems and persecutions of the people of Israel. So it is like that stone striking Abram. Abel, because Abel wants to go out and sacrifice well, and the other guy is too stuck on himself in his own mound of worship. So yeah, there you go. At the time, you would have really seen yourself in this story. And that's a key way that I think we ought to see this text. But here's the second one. I want to zoom out a lot. So that's the very nitty gritty how they would have felt it relates to them. I want to zoom out and talk about the overall, oh, sacrificial thing going on. Here's how it begins, all right? When we go to the beginning of the story, we find that uh, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, and what should have happened, says the tradition, is Adam should have fought the serpent, protected Eve, said no to sin. So he failed in this act of sacrifice because he failed to offer himself. So after mankind fails to offer himself, God stoops down a little bit and makes it a bit easier for us. He says, all right, this is how you offer an animal. And then we get to the second generation, and that's what's going on. We're offering animals. But Cain says, I'm not going to offer an animal. So he offers plants. So now we have this 
failure to offer even the animal, and now we're down to plants. And as we continue to go on, we find out there's no sacrifice to God going on prior to the flood. Nothing is pleasing, so they failed to even do what Cain did and offer a plant. And that's when destruction comes. And then we have Noah. He offers first his obedience. And then after that, these clean animals come to him. And he offers his clean animals. But then he goes back in the wrong direction because he takes the wine and he misuses it. That leads to the debauchery with Canaan. And now we get a curse. Genesis picks up talking about the story of Babel, where they pick up dirt and straws, these basic low-level things in the hierarchy of, of being. And they use it to build, but they're doing the wrong thing. Instead of using it to worship, they're doing the opposite. They're using it to aggrandize themselves, trying to elevate themselves as God. And then they get even worse. So then they start employing people to build this. So we have this big hierarchy that's an evil hierarchy they're building. So it's cursed. And so far in this story, we're kind of bummed because it's going one way and we think it's going to be good, but then it goes the other way. Um, Noah looked like a bright spot, but he fails. Enter Abraham. This guy is a father of faith for a really good reason. His story begins where there is no food. So he doesn't have anything, right? But he responds to the call to go to Egypt. So he offers his obedience. And there he finds food, and then he can raise a flock. So now he has animals he can sacrifice. Next, he finds out that his nephew Lot has been captured in an evil city. So what does he do? Well, he does what Adam couldn't. He decides to go and fight against the evil king. And when he does that, he rescues Lot. So he is willing to sacrifice himself. And when he does that, he bumps into Melchizedek, where he offers the um, sacrifice, his tithe, the tenth of everything to Melchizedek, who's likely Shem. And Melchizedek is this, this old priest who comes all the way back from the time, the last time that anybody was going up the hierarchy of sacrifice back in Noah's time when he was meant to renew the earth and this generation was meant to do this. So we got Melchizedek there. Abraham offers his tithe. And then from that point, Melchizedek tells him of the promise of a future son, one who ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus himself, right? And we have that meal at this point. When we hit the very pinnacle of sacrifice, Abraham goes from nothing to food, food to flocks, flocks to sacrificing himself, sacrificing him, himself to sacrificing all to the uh, true high priest on earth here, being given the promise of a son, that himself he will offer. He is then given this meal of bread and wine, which symbolizes the Eucharist, which comes up in the new covenant. All right, so Genesis is telling us this story, um, how we ought to move up the hierarchy of sacrifice and how when we do, things get better and how we move down the hierarchy of sacrifice, things get worse. So Cain ought to have offered an animal, but he descends to only plants. And when he sees that this is even, this is condemned, instead of repenting and doing right, he listens to his evil urge and gets drawn down further. In fact, we see him not even picking up a plant to serve God, but he picks up something even lower. He picks up a rock 
in order to kill something which is much higher, his brother, in order to sacrifice to his own evil, animalistic desire for vengeance, his envy, his jealousy, his anger. So by killing Abel, he puts his envy and anger, his animal passions, in the place of worship. And instead of bringing peace like a good sacrifice would have, it brings about violence. Instead of worship, it's just naked sin. So, um, we mentioned how this act gets him exiled even further. Um, And that's exactly what happened. He gets sent further east. And this is important because we see this movement through history so far. We have the movement out of Eden East and the movement from the East even further. But it picks up far later in the gospel story when we learn of the Magi who see the star in the East, the sign of the Messiah. Then they journey from the East back to the West. That's how we begin this new gospel story, to find a new Eden. What was Eden characterized by? Well, there was God, there was an Adam and Eve, and there were all of the animals surrounded around. And what did we see as presented by the uh, gospel writers in this same period, although it could have happened later, but they presented this way for a reason? We find Jesus and Mary and Joseph. We find Jesus laid in a manger surrounded by animals. This is a new tiny Eden that they're looking for because they're coming back home. And the Magi are doing two things. One, they're using reason. They're not just acting like animals. They're exercising their higher power. They're doing the opposite of what Cain did. And two, they're bringing a sacrifice. They're bringing the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're understanding that they're here to honor a king. So they're returning through reason back to Eden with the sacrifice, enlightened by revelation that was probably passed down by Daniel. All right. Um, Here's another theme I want to explore. And this is Cain as a story of descent to the level of the beast. So we begin with pride. That's where it all starts. And uh, it's pride that means that he won't follow Abel's example. He won't exchange his crops for a lamb. And he disconnects from the sacrificial act whereby he would have, should have given God his gratitude. So that's step one. It's a lack of gratitude, the uh, movement of pride the blinding to what one ought to do and caring only about oneself. Step two is this sinful flesh rises up such that it can overcome him. It's no longer being mastered by reason. It's instead driving him. It's not being uh, tempered by right sacrifice, which gives us the ability to always put the highest things in the highest place. It's not being discriminated against. He should have done that. He should have examined his desires and learned which are good and which are evil. He's one who's having to do this because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has been eaten from. That's what God calls him to do. It says, hey, there's an evil urge here and you need to master it. You need to know what is that call and what is the call of God and then choose rightly but he fails to do that. 
And then the flesh is not being directed by reason. And then he lashes out at his brother in this murderous rage and kills him. At which point he's driven into the wilderness to wander around like the beasts just wander through the wilderness. And by the end of his story, we have him becoming, well, if you have poor eyesight, indistinguishable from an animal. And then he is killed because he's mistaken for an animal. So that's his descent to the level of a beast. Now, we're commonly told in the sacrificial system that the animal in the sacrifice is taking our place. And that can commonly be looked at as this rich, dense, metaphysical claim, or maybe this juridical claim, legal claim. That's not what it's doing in this story. Instead, it's showing the logic of sacrifice. If he had sacrificed an animal at the beginning, he would not have died like an animal. That is actually the core message of the sacrificial system. There's a real sense in which sacrifice keeps you from dying like an animal. And in the time when that only sacrifice were sheep and goats and bulls and things like that, well, that's what prevented you from the descent of Cain. All right, we're going to take a brief break here. And we're going to be picking up on what does it mean that he was sacrificing flax? And uh, yeah, we got plenty more to cover. Don't worry. All right, so we got old Cain growing some flaxseed, and that's going to be his offering. Flaxseed famously is what you use to make, well, maybe not the seed, but flax in general, whatever. I don't know. I'm not a, a linen enthusiast, but I know this crop is somehow included in the making thereof, like the Egyptians do and do to this day. So this is his offering. Here's what I want to point out. When you make a linen garment, this is something which is external. And that seems to be all that he cares about. Cares about, at best, an external letter of the law compliance with whatever God wants. So you want to sacrifice, okay, I'll give you something which is just bare minimum that will somehow meet this. And then I'm going to be surprised when you don't like me giving on my terms. So that's what he's doing. But the burnt offering, if you recall from the Leviticus episode, has a number of things which are involved. Key is, well, there's this offering of the fat, but you're offering the fat because you've opened up the animal. When you open up the animal in a burnt offering, you have to wash the internal organs with water, such that the water pours from the organs down the legs. This, of course, is fulfilled in the cross, where Christ our sacrifice, fulfills each one of these, as I explained at length in the Leviticus series, but he fulfills the burnt offering sacrifice in that he is opened up with the spear and blood and water pour out just like the burnt offering. And this water comes down through his organs and then just like the sacrifice, this blood and water pours down over his legs on the cross. So what the water washing is meant to represent is that when we sacrifice, we are not just looking for external compliance with the law. We are not just looking to 
change what we do, but we need to wash our own hearts and have an internal um, effect of God's grace in us to remake us from the inside. That's what the sacrifice meant. And that specifically is what's avoided by Cain. It's this interior movement to self, this washing with water. There is no internal organ to a linen something. No, it's only for the exterior. Whereas in Abel's sacrifice, this burnt offering, it is an interior sacrifice, and then the skin is given to the priest. So he also gets that in addition. But it's not principally for the exterior. It's to transform the heart and thereby transform um, our actions. Now, there's certainly a homemade versus a God-intended dynamic here. Because recall, Adam and Eve tried to make their own homemade clothes when they sewed together fig leaves. So it's our own poor attempt at covering our sin, and it's our attempt at fixing our problems on our own terms. That's what Cain's doing. That's what his parents did. But God comes in and slaughters the sacrifice himself for Adam and Eve, and then gives them these skins, something that God himself has done. And then Abel is following this example, and then, assumedly, if he follows the burnt offering, will have a covering. But it's a covering of obedience, not just external compliance. So you might be wondering, I'm sure you're wondering, why is it then, if we have skins being the proper garment, and fig leaves wrong, and then linen being wrong, why would it be that we have this... Uh, this whole temple worship and tabernacle dress, all in linen, right? All the priestly garments are linen. In fact, the one-piece garment that Christ went to the cross in was almost certainly linen. So how does that work? Oh, one more thing. This linen versus uh, skin or wool dynamic is mentioned in the, uh, in the Talmud as the reason for the law's prohibition on mixing wool and linen why wearing uh, fabrics of these two different wo woven cloths why because that would be like mixing up this evil sacrifice of cain with the righteous sacrifice of abel and we don't want that we want purity in our sacrifice so they represent that by purity in their in their dress so here's a couple reasons though why i think there was a switch to linen um I think it had to do with the defeat of Pharaoh and the fact that all of the luxuries and riches were being taken from the service of man, the city of man, and being transferred over into the city of God. So we have all of the gold of Egypt that they took out is turned into the, uh, the sacred vessels, right? So when we have the gold being spoken of that creates even things like the Ark of the Covenant, well, but that's evil Egyptian gold, which was first used as earrings and other things, which are meant to make individual people look more beautiful. Well, God says, actually, that's going to be turned over to the service of God in the process of sacrifice. And likewise, we get, uh, we get linen, right? That's something that was likely taken out of Egypt. And it goes from being a luxury that's just in the service of man to elevate oneself over one's poorer neighbors to a 
priestly vestment, which actually elevates all of us in holiness through the sacrifice, something that we do as a communion, communion sacrifice. So it seems to be a redemption of these things and a movement from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And of course, we have the famous prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. So it's in a way picturing Christ, where many grapes are crushed to become the one wine, many uh, uh, heads of wheat are crushed to become the bread, and we also get new garments in Christ. So there's an extent to which this can prefigure that same um, many into one crushing, and then we have something of Christ that's a result. So maybe it's picturing that. And finally, I noticed uh, the Road to Emmaus place, a Scott Hahn type publication thing, notes that linen is to keep us cool and that it's acting against the curse which is working with the sweat of our brow. And if the verbiage which is in the uh, describing the work in the garden and the work in the temple is extraordinarily similar. So yeah, I guess the temple is a type of Eden and it's a place where there shouldn't be sweat. We should be cool, where our burden is light. That's yet another reason why God dresses the high priest in linen. So linen itself, not bad. But it is part of this interesting story of priestly vestments, starting all the way back with Adam and Eve. Um, So Cain is offering this exterior man-made sacrifice. Abel offers a pure heart to God, obedience to God, justice to God which is sacrifice. It's a type of justice to God. It's a work that's the virtue of religion. It relates to justice. And thus, he, being this religious man, is called Abel the Just. Um, let's, uh, hmm. I think it's about time to pull it into, uh, pull it into new, co- new covenant age. Uh, is there anything in this passage that you see as relating to the new covenant? Um, I hope you do. And I referenced it a couple times, and you may have uh, picked up on it earlier. Um, What would have stopped this whole thing? What was the first move that Cain could have made to actually actually affect the, the sacrifice? Well, he could have given up some of his crops, and then got a lamb in return. So that's kind of like the Egyptians. They could have um, not done the whole refusing even straw. Now, the uh, where am I going with this? I'm going this way. Let me quote part of a Eucharistic prayer, which mentions Abel, and I'll show how we undo this first sin of Cain. Da, 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 with a serene and kindly countenance, and to accept them as once you were pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel the just, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the offering of your high priest Melchizedek, a holy sacrifice, a spotless victim. So we have Abel the just being called up in one of the Eucharistic prayers. So when we make a sacrifice, it's like the sacrifice of Abel, It's like the sacrifice of Abraham that we talked about. It is like the sacrifice of Melchizedek that we talked about recently. And in the sacrifice of the Mass, we undo the sin of Cain by bringing out our crops. We bring wine and wheat, the fruit of the earth, and we exchange them 
with the good shepherd, the ultimate good shepherd, for the Lamb of God, which we get in return. So we're putting this whole process in reverse. Instead of murder, we get communion. Instead of death, we get life. Instead of a punishment, we receive a blessing. Instead of being cast out of God's presence, we enter it. And instead of the earth being cursed, the universe is renewed once again in every mass. So that's what we're doing. We're undoing the sin of Cain. Cain failed to give up his crops to the good shepherd and receive a lamb, which would make him righteous in the sight of God. But we are not to make this same mistake. We are to bring the fruit of the earth and exchange it for the Lamb of God in the Eucharist. So let's rocket through a bunch more interesting points. Um, gee, I don't think I even read this part. We're down to like verse 20 or something. Lamech married two women, one named Adel and the other Zillah. Adel gave birth to Zappa, who is the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Juba. And he was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah had a son, Tubalcane, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubalcane's sister was Nema. Now, um, we have these three groups here. In the city of man, as Augustine tells us this is, Cain is the progenitor of the city of man and Abel, the city of God. So here in the city of man, we have these three things. Well, guy making tents, doing livestock. Sounds great, right? Another person with the stringed instruments and pipes. And finally, with the fellow with the uh, bronze and iron. What is objectionable about this? Well, tradition tells us that the tents and livestock are not quite so innocent. Instead, he's growing livestock, cattle in particular, in order to be sacrificed as four, well, tents and other structures that he's making, which are actually pagan temples. So this guy's doing pagan temples and growing sacrifices. Really bad. The next group. Um, yeah, turns out all these instruments and pipes are not to worship God, but instead to help worship those idols and demons and fake gods and whatnot. Okay, bronze and iron. They're tools, we're said. Well, they're not any type of tools. They're actually tools of murder. This guy is an arms manufacturer and he gives them out to evil people. And we're told, interestingly, I think this one might be from the Book of Enoch, I have to double check on that, that the same demon who taught men to make weapons also taught women how to do makeup. So, multi-talented demon, that fellow, but I thought that was an interesting point. Um, but yes, that would be, apparently, Tubal Cain would be in communion with this person making weapons of murder. Now, some commentators of the of the dim-witted variety, I won't name names, uh, they see this passage as an indictment of technology. Why, we have raising of livestock, we have all these musical instruments, we have these tools of iron and bronze. Why, why these are the bad guys? Must be condemning technology, right? <laughs> no, of course not. That's absolutely silly and ridiculous. Remember, that um, that Israelite, right? He's the guy talking with Moses. What did he experience? 
very recently or have living memory of? Well, he remembers. Uh, well, there's a step one out of Egypt that, gee, I don't know. What did they do that was the big... Oh, I got it. They misused cattle in an idolatrous way. Ah, that can go wrong. And what else? We have all the revelry and whatnot that they experience when they come to the base of the mountain. And yeah, then we have the experience of the the many murderous hordes which are trying to kill them at various points, leaving Egypt while they're in the wilderness and going into the promised land. So this guy would be very well acquainted with the misuse of each one of those three things. Okay? Does that mean that these things are bad in and of themselves? Well, no, because Moses is writing this. And you know what he writes a little bit later? He writes about how livestock is being raised in Israel. And it's actually used not to begin an idolatrous worship, but you sacrifice these bulls in order to ordain the true priests. You sacrifice the bulls in order to do some of the most important sacrifices in the Old Testament system, in order to consecrate the tabernacle. And we find somebody building tents who's in the city of man. And what is Moses commanding everybody to do but build a tent for God, not for an idol? So, livestock is being used by the city of God to worship God. Tents to be the tabernacle to worship God. We have the instruments and the pipes. We're told that there are 24-7 singers by the time we have the temple going on. We have hymns of praise, some of which are quoted in the Old many of which are quoted in the Old Testament. We have the Psalms being produced. All of these are produced in worship of God. The instruments and pipes are obviously not bad. But they are bad when they're turned over to evil use. And then, what about bronze and iron and all these metals? Like, gee, is that just evil technology? Woo! No, of course not. Why? Because we see that the Spirit of God comes upon people to give the work of their hands an extraordinary power in the creation of all of the ornaments of the temple and before that in the tabernacle for all of that furniture. So God's Holy Spirit himself comes to help people um, build things out of gold, out of all these materials. Why? To serve demons? No, of course not. Obviously, to serve the one true God. So, with the descendants of Cain, we see there's a false religion, a false worship, and they use good things to evil ends. However, this is being written at a time when the reverse is happening, where Moses is plundering Egypt for their things and turning them over to the use of God, and this is what salvation looks like. When Jesus takes on a human form and redeems the universe, he starts an incredible march to the end of time, whereby all of the universe is being transformed, where that one mustard seed is growing, where whole nations are being discipled. We ought to use technology, the goods of the earth, all of these things, but in the way that Abel the just would, with an eye towards heaven, with a pure heart, not in envy, 
That's the misuse of the goods of the earth, but in worship and gratitude. That's the correct way. All right. What was the mark of Cain? Um, I mentioned earlier that it uh, was possibly the fear of the animals. So he descends towards the beast. The beasts no longer fear him. So God puts this mark on him so that the animals would fear him. Another one is uh, some mention that this mark is a quaking of the earth below his feet because he killed his brother. So as he approached people, the earth itself would shake. Now, we do see this earthquake motif later at the cross where the Jews killed their brother, Jesus. <laughs> they cry out for his blood. Um, now, also suffered under Pontius Pilate. Situation is more complicated, but you guys get it. We also have this earthquake when they we kill our brother, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to, did Cain really intend to kill Abel? I bet you probably assumed he did, but let me put my defense attorney hat on for a moment. <clears throat> At the time of my client Cain's um, alleged murder, there was no example of human death. He may have seen animals die, but I think it's unfounded to say that he would extend this experience to human death, since human death at this point was unknown. And he knew that God did pronounce death on his parents in the day that they sinned, but he did not witness a physical death. Instead, he witnessed the displeasure of God upon them. So when he strikes Cain to bring about death, it's not the type of death that we think of today. Instead, he may be seeking to bring about the type of death which he saw visited on his parents. And wouldn't that fit with Cain's story? Because Cain is not jealous of just anything, but he's jealous of this connection that Abel has to God. This is what he's seeking to sever. So, he does not intend to kill Abel as such, but instead to disconnect Abel from a privileged place vis-a-vis -vis God. Therefore, this is not murder. Further, the penalty for murder says Genesis, the very same book of Moses we're reading from. It says that whoever sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So he ought to have his blood shed. But look at the punishment that God specifically says he gets. Now, yes, there's a hunting accident, unrelated, I may add, and quite speculative. <clears throat> what we do know is that God gives him a punishment. And it's one of exile, specifically exile to the city to the east. And of course, there's a connection of this type of punishment, not to the crime of murder, but to the crime of unintentional killing. Because in the law, Moses, the same author of this book, tells us that unintentional killers of men may seek a city of refuge, which is commonly, at, least at this point, named amongst the cities of the east. And since this is the penalty that God gives Cain, we can infer from the penalty what is, in fact, the crime, which would be, of course, an unintentional killing. So that's my defense of Cain. And, uh, well, let's, uh, let's take the other side for a second here. Jewish rabbinic texts say that his punishment 
of death was delayed because he got the punishment of exile first. So note the hunting accident is part of the providential plan of God. So God does have his blood shed and by men. That seven is implying a date of completion, a day where in the end he rests. In this case, he rests in the grave when the work of his sin has come to head. And we think this is highly likely because this is also what happens to Adam and Eve, who die also, as best as we can tell, on the seventh generation along the, quote, unquote, the evil line. So he gives exile for his punishment in order to allow the generations of Cain to continue so that God can bring good even from evil. Not because he's giving him a punishment which will not eventually bring to death, and not because he is implying that his intention was anything other to murder. Now, I want to bring in um, an interesting passage. Um, Jesus, uh, I believe this is in the Beatitudes, discusses murder, and not this isn't necessarily related to whether or not we think he has intent. Wait, maybe it is. All right, let me read it to you guys, because I think this is interesting. You have heard that it was said of those of old, those of old, okay, so you're in Jesus' time, way back, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and give your gift. I think this is kind of a callback to Cain and Abel, because it's the people of old, it's talking about murder, and this is the first murder. It talks about a dispute between brothers, and I can only name oh, very few disputes among brothers which involve murder in the Old Testament. This is the only one that comes to mind. Um, Cain strikes Abel with something much worse than a curse word, but with a stone. So I'd say that if one is guilty of, of murder in this New Testament sense, then Cain certainly is with the anger of his heart and then the actions against his brother. So I am going to give the judgment, bang the gavel. Cain is guilty of intentional murder. He did lure him out to the field for this, so it is premeditated, and the anger in his heart implies his intent of death against his brother, and his actions brought about exactly this. So I'm going to call him guilty, but I did want to bring up that the... Um, the interesting part about exile and how that mirrors the city of refuge later in the law. That's something that I think has something to it. What it is, I do not know. So, am I my brother's keeper? That's the question that, that um, Cain asks God. Let me ask you, did anything jump out to you in that passage I just read from the gospel? The context being murder, all that, right? Well, something that popped out to me was the statement, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So Cain failed to be his brother's keeper in a big way. 
But it could be said that so did Abel, because it seems that if Abel followed Jesus's instructions here, he possibly could have brought his brother with him to his sacrifice. He should have not sacrificed yet, but instead tried to reconcile with his brother and then invited him to join that sacrifice. So it seems that Jesus would have called Abel to a type of evangelization, seeing himself as his brother's keeper. Now, maybe he did and we're not told in the story. Maybe he didn't, and Jesus, because of the grace which is on offer through his life, death, and resurrection, is raising the standard of moral behavior, not just from sacrifice for ourselves, but also to reconcile with evil neighbors and bring them into proper worship in this call to evangelism. So let's read this whole section one more time, and then we'll end with a more, uh, more practical, more moral sense of the text. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad the father of Mehujalel. And Mehujalel was the father of Methuselah, and Methuselah the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adel and one Zillah. Adel gave birth to Zuppah. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah had a son, Tubal Khan, 
who forged all sorts of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Adel and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So, from um, the website uh, ancienthebrew.org, in an article by Jeff Berner, we learn that uh, the Hebrew for Cain is Quayan, and Abel is Havel. And the word Quayan means to acquire or possess something, which, he says, is why Eve says, I have gotten or acquired a man. So it's like a play on words here. Now, the word for Abel, Havel, relates to being empty. It's often translated as vain or vanity in the sense of being empty of substance. So remember, um, these are brothers for sure and possibly twins. One is good, one is bad. That should make you have some pretty strong Jacob and Esau vibes, especially since we learned in that episode that Esau means fully made. And Jacob means usurper, right? He has to get. He, he does not have yet, right? Now, Jesus is the ultimate able, the fulfillment of Jacob. And thus, we have the words of Philippians. <clears throat> Again, not a dramatic cough, a regular cough. Who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the kenosis, the famous kenosis, emptying passage. So we too are to empty ourselves of worldly attachments and instead be elevated by God in the acts of worship, not acts of violence like Cain and Esau tried to do. So there we go. So we have Jesus being a fulfillment of this, the one who is ultimately self-emptying through the kenosis, the fulfillment of the one who is called empty and the one who is called usurper, meaning does not have yet, but will. So looking into the, uh, looking out in the world, it can be easy to feel as if there are the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's a great um that's a good translation of Cain and Abel. So Cain has, Abel does not have. He is the lacking one. So you can read this as a story of the haves and the have-nots. And yes, there are times in history that the haves can kill and oppress and defeat the have-nots, the righteous Abels. But what this tells us is that that's not the whole story. It's not just about the haves oppressing the have-nots. Why? Well, because we have Seth, and when Seth comes into the picture, he has a different name than the others. His name is established. That's what his name means, established, planted, or come to be here. So he is the replacement, says the text. Um, Eve says, this has replaced my son Abel because Cain has killed him. And this pictures the fact that those who are counted as have-nots by the world 
if they love God, are established forever in the resurrection, where old bodies have passed away, or have not bodies of Abel have passed away, and we come established in Christ. So the generation of the righteous is one that comes in this twofold way. First, one that, yes, can be destroyed, can pass away, but then a second, which is established. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He dies as an able, as a have-not, stripped of everything, self-emptying, naked on the cross. He dies as an able. But he resurrects as a Seth, as a Seth, being the established ruler of all creation, one that will not be moved. Now you might be thinking that um, being a Cain here on earth, being a have, is going to make you happy. But it won't. And this passage says as much. We find Cain, even though it says that he has, he's actually miserable. That's what he has. He has a downcast face. And things only get worse for him as we move through this passage. So Cain fancies himself a, a conqueror and imagines that he can reach ultimate happiness through force, through bending reality to him. Instead, God explains that he's losing the most important fight of all that he can't conquer these animal passions, but he should. Proverbs tells us it's more difficult to master yourself than to defeat a walled city. And interesting enough, after not being able to master his own animal passions, he goes off to start a city. That's what he does when he leaves after this. Because he still hasn't learned his, learned his message that his focus should be on what's internal and not just external. That's what was wrong with his sacrifice. He continues to spin his own linens. He continues to askew the lesson of the burnt offering sacrifice. That our hearts, our internals, our own passions, our own stomachs need to be washed clean with water. Ultimately, the water of baptism. And because he and his descendants... Don't learn this, and the filth of sin continues in Genesis. Well, it's ultimately washed by the water of the flood, a proto-baptism for mankind. So what it's telling us is that either we need to bring down a judgment on our own hearts and master ourselves, or we'll end up with a civilization that is primed for the destruction that God brings. And as regards ourselves... When we find ourselves wandering, when we've uh, been turned towards our most base animal passions, when you found that the ground around you, reality itself, isn't bearing a harvest for you, that your skills for coping with reality seem to be striking against a cursed earth, know this, there is a path back. The Magi found it. They used reason to orient themselves back towards the truth. And what they found was the truth incarnate in a manger. You can hear and you can answer the voice of God when he's asking, where is your brother Abel? Recall, Abel means lacking. So if you find yourself wandering like Cain, one of your ways back is to answer that question correctly. When he says, where's your brother Abel? Instead of saying, am I my brother's keeper? You should say, right here, God. He was thirsty, and I gave him drink. He was naked, and I clothed him. He was in prison, and I visited him. 
That's the way you make your way back to Eden. That's how you turn from going east back to going west. Churches are traditionally facing west so that when we leave the mass, when we are sent out, that's what mass, it's the sending, we're sent at the kingdom of darkness. That's the path back by defeating the powers of sin, by being sent out sacramentally to do battle with what is lacking, what is evil, what is empty. So if you find yourself filled up, realize that that's not to be turned in on oneself, even though that's the temptation, but you're instead to empty yourself like Christ did. It's not enough to have external compliance with the law, though Cain didn't even quite have that. We learn from the Gospels that the rich young ruler who had much was lacking one thing, and that was he was unable to give up what he had, to do that kenosis, to be self-emptying, to become an Abel, to become a Seth, to become a Jacob, to become a Jesus, and to follow him completely. Last thing you can do is you can always, if you find yourself wandering, if you find yourself moving closer and closer to the level of a beast, is you can give up your pride. Go to the good shepherd. That's what Abel was. He was a good shepherd. He was one who knew the right sacrifices. He was the one that could have given Cain a lamb that would have saved him from becoming the animal, which he's confused for and killed as in the end. That's what we can do. We can come to Christ as the good shepherd. He will give of himself so that we don't end in death. So you can move up the hierarchy of sacrifice one step at a time. That's the good news. You don't have to jump to holiness all at once. All that Cain was called to do is go from the sacrifice of these vegetables up one level, sacrifice a lamb. We ought to follow our father of faith, Abraham, moving step by step up the hierarchy of sacrifice until, empowered by Christ's grace, we can do as Paul said and make ourselves a holy and living sacrifice. The good news in the Cain and Abel story is that God's judgment doesn't come for a long time. Not for Cain, and not for any of us who quite often act like Cain. So the mark on your forehead, on my forehead, when we're acting like Cain's, is a mark that when we're wandering the earth, when we feel like reality is set against us, well, that's a mark that God is delaying judgment so that we can eventually wander back home like the prodigal son did. Cain never did, but all of us should. All of us should be Abel's. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that that exposition of the text. And uh, yeah, if you guys have a story in the Gospels or story in the why did I say Gospels? Anywhere in the Bible that you'd like me to address, I greatly enjoy doing these episodes. I pulled out everything I could find, and I hope that I've uh, flushed out the meaning of the text a little bit better and taught you guys something you may not have known before. I know I learned a lot putting this episode together. Thanks, as always, for listening. I do invite you to share it with at least one friend today that you think would enjoy listening to rate, review, push all the buttons, greatly appreciate that too and if you would like to suggest an episode or bring any feedback or really just introduce yourself and let me know where you're listening from how you heard of me 
then email me at the Gordian Knot 101 at gmail.com. So just the Gordian Knot 101 at gmail.com. And the the is part of the email. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.